Hello and welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about expatriates and the artistic way they've styled their lives around the world. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. Find yourself shipwrecked in a far-off place and Dale, welcome to the show. <laughs> Try not to plan too much at all. You know, it just be spontaneous. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. I'm gonna sail again. Yeah. One more. I got one more sailing. Love her to leave her wild. But it didn't work for me. The American dream wasn't gonna work for me because I didn't fit American dream. I had respect when I was a young farmer. Now I'm an old guy, and I respect myself. You know what, Jacob? I'm a secret fan. And I prefer to just be secret. And if you can figure out who Dale Dagger is, then figure it out. And if you can't, then don't. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. I'm sitting here with uh, Brian Friedrichs, a beautiful human being who I've met in Nicaragua. We're doing it live, actually, in his jungle home. And uh, he's led an interesting life. And I think that you're going to benefit from his story and his experiences over the last 30, 40 years of his life. So I'd like to introduce him. He's from Minnesota originally, old surfer, shaper, drug smuggler, and uh, just colorful individual altogether. So Brian, welcome to the show. How are you today? Well, thank you. I'm fine. I appreciate that <laughs> colorful introduction. <laughs> Scary almost. <laughs> We're uh, happy, to hear, yeah, happy to have you and hear your story. Um, now, before we get into the present day situation you find yourself in, we'd like to maybe hear a little bit about your past, and you grew up in Minnesota, is that correct? I grew up in Minnesota on a dairy farm, first 10 years of my life, and uh, my dad actually lost his left hand in an accident, you know, a corn picker accident, a normal thing in, in farm life, and so we ended up losing the farm and moving to Texas. And that's when I found the ocean, or the Gulf of Mexico. And with that came bales of marijuana washing up on the shore, and everything kind of clicked at that point. I mean, I was 10 at that point, but by the time I got to be 14, 15, then everything started clicking together, and and I started having those evil thoughts, I guess you could call them. Now, when you say they were washing up, that literally bales of marijuana would literally wash up? Literally bales. They used to call them square groupers because big bales would just wash up on the shore. You know, either a scuttled boat or or they were ditching them to have them picked up or whatever. But uh, it happened quite often. And you were able to capitalize on those sometimes? Oh, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. And was your family involved in that? or they? Did you no, no. That? My family was very... Uh, no, very strict German Lutheran family. No, uh, no involvement in, in anything like that at all. I'm, I'm the one that took that ball and, and ran with it, and, and did something completely different than the rest of the family. So, did sure. you ever, ever have uh, a normal? I guess normal. What's, what's normal? But a trajectory where it's like you went to school, oh, you're yeah. gonna get a job. Yeah, just... I mean, everything was pretty normal up until, uh, you know, 18 when it was time to go. And then uh, then I started putting everything in, in motion that I wanted to do. 
one thing I wanted to, I wanted to build boards, most of it. Surfboards. Surfboards. And uh, I can remember one day our street was flooded in Houston, and I took some plywood and I cut out the shape of a board and I nailed a couple fins on it and I was floating it down the street and I said, I'm going to make surfboards when I grow up. And I did. And I went to Galveston and uh, worked a couple years and then went to California and, and that's what I did till I broke my neck in 2004. So you just made your living off of shaping surfboards? For off of surfboards and then... Uh, you know, the smuggling was uh, mixed in between there. Okay. Because it was, uh, well, what uh, what the people I was working with, you basically, they, we smuggled all summer, and then you went to Hawaii and spent three, four, five months in Hawaii, and then came back to Texas and went to Mexico, and that was the routine for seven, eight years. And then I got busted the first time coming across the Rio Grande with 100 pounds in 1991. And that, at that time, was basically a slap on the wrist, 13 months, six months in a camp. The the complete club fed because we had, it was, it was actually an old Air Force base converted to a prison and we had a pool from September, from May to September, so that was that was decent the second time around wasn't so pretty so how did you get popped the first time with 100 pounds what were you what were you we uh we were it was a tip there's like one road down to the beach on the mexican side the rio grande splits mexico and texas and there's one road to the beach on the mexican side and there's one store right before the beach and they pay her 1500 bucks for tips if she thinks that somebody's bringing something. So they paid her. She called in, and they followed us all night. And uh, we had put the, the sailboards inside a van once we paddled them across the river. And then the van went to Brownsville, and we waited till the next morning to put them back on my truck and leave. Well... We opened the van to pull the sailboards out, and we're surrounded by six cars and 12 guys, and I look down, and there's the red dot on my chest, and I go, oh, shit, and then that was that one. Mm -hmm. But up until then, you hadn't had any problems. Like no, was it, it was, that easy? Uh, yeah, like six, seven years of smooth sailing, you know? Always doing it the same way. Always doing it the same way, probably six, seven times a year. Always in surfboards or paddleboards? It was in, uh, sur in uh, sailboards, and then uh, when I got busted, we actually had graduated up to a little uh, sunfish sailboat, and we could get 500 pounds in that one. Luckily, when I got busted, I didn't have 500 pounds in it, so it would have been more time. Mm -hmm. So that was that, and then that kind of uh, kind of retired from that, and just well, I had you know three years probation, and then I just went back to making surfboards, and uh, you know raised the kids, went through the divorce, the whole you know American scene, and then uh, the reason I moved to Mexico was they hit me with such 
horrendous child payments. You know, like another grand. I was paying five grand a month just to live on the beach in California to begin with, and then they wanted me to give her another thousand. So I was like, well, I'm going to Mexico. So I took the kids and we went to Mexico. And then, uh, you know, that was 19 years after my first arrest, and then I got involved again because I had broken my neck and really wasn't able to do anything. And then someone introduced me to Ricardo, and here we go again. Is that just natural for you to... Under the you circumstances. Know, yeah, I don't know what it is. I can go anywhere and get involved in it. It just, it's like it gravitates to me. I don't care where it is. I can go find the people that have the weed and sell it and, and move it. It's, it's just a horrible gift, I guess. <laughs> so you have a gift for finding and attracting drug dealers. <laughs> mm-hmm, I do. I and do. does it ever, um, more than just marijuana, do you ever go into harder stuff? I've been offered that, and I always denied it. Because with cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. And, you know, I never got rich on weed. I did okay at times. At times, I lost everything. But... I did it, and I really didn't even realize at the beginning why I was doing it, but as time went on, and certainly now, I did it because the people deserve to have it. It's a a preventative medicine that people need, that people were supposed to be using constantly to prevent all of this pain and agony. And that was my main reason. People deserve it. And for someone to tell you that that you can't have it, well, I'm here to tell you, fuck you, I'm going to give it to them. And that was my, really my main drive. And it still is. Not that I'm involved in anything, but that's still my attitude. Do you still smoke? Oh, yeah. I couldn't survive without it. I'd go nuts with, you know, the pain. Because... Can't eat narcotics. Number one, and narcotics don't even touch the pain I have. And so, you know, you burn your liver out doing that. But at least with cannabis, you can, I can, it kills the pain a little bit, but it keeps your mind in line a little bit, you know. Let's talk easier a little about, to maintain. Yeah, let's talk some more about the, the pain you're in and how that all came to be. You said you're in a really horrible car accident at one oh, point God. in life. Yeah, I, uh, I was living in uh, Baja Malibu, which is near Rosarito, and I'd gone out to eat one night, and I was on the toll road, headed home, less than a mile from my house, and I came up a little rise in the road, and there's a stalled car, no lights, abandoned, right in the middle of the right, right lane, and I swerved to miss it, which I did. But the last thing I remember is gripping super hard on the steering wheel and the feeling like the entire car is lifting up. And then it was just black. Don't remember anything. The next thing, I'm like 100 feet in the air looking down, and I'm watching the accident transpire. And I I was in Noah's Jeep Cherokee at the time, and I said to myself, and there were no words, 
There wasn't a body, there wasn't a word, there wasn't even a space or a time. But I was saying or thinking, that's Noah's car. And then I watched it swerve around the abandoned car. <clears throat> I watched it roll over. I watched myself fly out of the car. And I landed upside down in the left lane. And the car was upside down in the right lane. And the feeling, it took me 12 years. I didn't, I kept telling people it's just the most incredible feeling of peace. But that word was insufficient. And so it finally hit me one month after I had the surgery, April of 2015. It was love. There was nothing up there but love. You know how they say, God is love. That's all there was. Nothing else. Beautiful. And that was a... Uh, and to this day, and I mean, I still get goosebumps telling this story, but to this day, I feel somewhat disconnected from this world. It's kind of like one foot's kind of still over there somewhere. Did you make the decision to come back into your body at some point during that experience? I or was didn't it? have any control over that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but you know what's weird about that is as wonderful as that feeling is, you still fight to stay here in this mess of, of this earth. You know, it's in your chip to fight to stay here until he says that's it. But as far as making a decision to come or go, I had no control over that whatsoever. It just happened. Have and you then, go gone into like more contemplation about that experience and the, that thought that we just discussed of uh, just your purpose for being here? Have you thought much yeah, about that? Every single moment. Yeah, after I. When I woke up, actually, I, I felt a bump. And I woke up, and I look, and I'm looking across my feet. And there's my car upside down with smoke coming off it. They had just pushed me in the, in the ambulance. And then I'm blacked out again, and we're, I wake up in the hospital, and I'm strapped to a wall. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I'm in front of an x-ray machine. And the doctor says, don't move. You broke your neck in three places really bad. Then he reaches in his pocket. And he pulls out my glasses, which I had on at the time. And he could see I was squinting to see the clock. And he puts them on my face. And they're in perfect condition. They're not scratched. They're not bent. And I wore them for two years after the accident. Hmm. Lucky glasses. And here I am, my body's destroyed, but my glasses are okay. And I picked glass. Glass was oozing out of my scalp and my face for over a month from going through the windshield. But my glasses were in perfect shape. <laughs> so contemplating what it's all about, yeah. Yesterday I was sitting here talking to my ladies, and I said, to this day, I, I, I still don't know really what what I'm supposed to do with this this second life, you know? So, yeah, it's been a question for almost 12 years. Hmm, and no answers have been coming up for you? Not really. I share my story as, as much as I can, if that helps people. But other than that, I'm not sure what it's... Uh, maybe I'm doing it, and I, maybe I'm just looking too hard, and 
I'm doing it and not even seeing it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I'm still asking that mm-hmm. much I know. Mm-hmm. And I don't know with something like that if you ever stop asking. You know? Because it's just something that's... It's not in the books. It's not written everywhere. It's not something that everyone experiences and talks about. So it has a it has a basis to it. You know, it's 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 an unknown thing. Mm-hmm. So, but you've mentioned to me in a past conversation that you've had individuals who have helped you out financially oh, yeah. and never asked for uh, repayment based on what they felt you had given them, taught them by Correct. just who you are, what you're like. Your lifestyle so has that maybe given you any insight into that question of your purpose or yeah that one did and that happened well that happened in uh end of february i was given a uh when i went to work one of the owners gave me uh three thousand dollars to uh put down on a down payment on a car and then all of this happened i was making payments up until the surgery and then the work I couldn't work as much and and before I left I said you know I haven't forgot about this and one way or another I'm gonna pay it and he said uh, no I don't want it he said uh, <laughs> he said you taught me the r- true meaning of life mm-hmm. and this is a rich man mm-hmm. He's got everything he needs mm-hmm. kids got everything but apparently he didn't know the true meaning of life. So, and what do you think it was for him? That all that material stuff isn't it. It isn't it. You know, one time I came in after they knew that I was gonna gonna quit and leave, and <clears throat> and I had the car, and they said, "Well, why don't you you know try and sell it?" And I wasn't gonna make it. You know even pay it off and one day I just said you know what I don't give a fuck about that car and I think at that moment because I saw him kind of look and stop he's not a man who says a lot of things but you can tell when he's thinking and I think that was a moment when when he saw my survival was more important than that car so I think yeah let let to to bring more clarity into this, you've lived in pain now for the last, what, 15 years of your life? 12 this, years. 12 years due yeah. to this accident that you had where you broke your neck in constant chronic pain, correct? Correct. And you've had to manage that pain through probably med- medical marijuana use, but also through the power of your being who you are, mm-hmm. your mind, and the strength that you've had to like learn to overcome this daily pain that you go through. And I think you can... Imagine that being around people who see how you move through life because you're a very relaxed person and how you deal with certain things. And and as you pointed out, like the materialism of the world doesn't really impress you. You don't need it. You found other things to fulfill you. I mean, you live a very simple life here in Nicaragua, very Mm -hmm. simple life. And uh, I think that gives people a, a sense of calm, you know, where maybe their lives are so... Um, full of stress and the hustle of the rat race and then to be in your presence because you, as we'll get more into it, you had to go back to the States to finally deal with this pain because it got so bad. So that's where the story is now. We're bringing it to present, which is what in the last year you left Nicaragua to go back to the States to deal with this 
neck injury that has been plaguing you for the last 12 years. And so you want to go into, like, what happened and, and why you went back to the States? Well, what happened was <clears throat> it was kind of a... Uh, kind of a roundabout way that I found out how bad it was. I was working here and I I was carrying a fence post and I fell and it fell across my hips. And at the same time I kind of hit my head a little bit. And so that kind of exasperated everything and my entire body went numb. And I went, hmm, this isn't good. So I had to wait here probably almost three months to heal enough to where I could travel. So then I went back, and uh, that's when they discovered that the bone spurs were so bad that it had closed off my, it was crushing my spinal cord. And bone spurs are gross from a bone. Yeah, it's, it's like when you, you, you broke, I broke my vertebrae and it started healing. And it just didn't know when to stop growing bone to stop healing. And it just kept growing bone and growing bone until it just crushed the spinal cord. So it was, like I say, in a roundabout way, it was a lucky thing I fell. Because it did bring this to the forefront. Because if I'd have stayed here another three, four months, I would have lost my walking. And it would have been too late to save it. This way, at least, I got there in time, and they relieved the pressure. And the damage I have is permanent, but it would have been a lot worse. And has the pain subsided at all, or is it still there? It's it's still there. It's maybe not quite as bad as the few months right after the surgery, but, you know, people ask me, well, what's your pain level? And, and I live at a 10, but a 10 I can handle. When I get to off the charts at 12, 15, and 20, that's when, you know, the hallucinations come, and and I just, I don't want to see anybody, and it's just, you know, it, it, it overcomes you. It mm-hmm. just, it, it debilitates you. It mm-hmm. just absolutely debilitates you. But being here, and I was hoping, being here, swimming in the ocean and relaxing would, would help, and it has. I hope it stays. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know it's going to be there. The neurological things will always be there, but they're certainly easier to heal when you're not in the middle of a rat race city mm-hmm. where the pressure is just constant. Mm-hmm. And that was a big part of my uh, decision. I just I couldn't handle that. I just couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. So... Here we are now. Um, He said there's no guarantee that the other two vertebrae may not need the same the same repair in five or ten years, but I'm hoping not. So we'll just see where it goes from here. Okay. I mean, I've uh, I've I've applied for disability three times and been turned down. So, my country doesn't love me. In fact, I have a great story for you. I had <clears throat> Dr. Pawan Grover. If you look him up, he is the premier pain specialist in the country. World-renowned. He's de- he, uh, <clears throat> he debated Jack Kevorkian on Nightline against pain control over suicide. 
Well, the first time I went in there, the office was packed. Standing room only. And I got a prescription, and it, you know, and, and then I went back three months later because it had just come on horribly again. And the place was empty. There's one person sitting in there. I thought, this is weird. So I walk in. I get, they put me in the office. He walks in. He goes, hey, how's it going? What's up? I go, man, the pain is just its debilitating. And he goes, I can't give you a prescription. He says, no one in this town is going to write you a prescription for pain medicine. He said, the DEA is going through the town. And if anyone even accidentally overdoses on anything I give you, I'm going to jail and I'm losing my practice. He says, every morning we get a fax from the American Medical Association, a list of doctors that are going to jail, getting indicted. And he pointed his finger at me and says, your government doesn't care about you. This is a doctor speaking layman terms to me. So that kind of explains where, uh, where we're at in the American... American everything. Yeah, let's talk more about that uh, experience you've had with the medical system, going back to get, you know, good treatment. Nicaraguan treatment is okay, but I, th I think going back to the States was something you felt was going to maybe be more in your benefit. Yeah. And what did you uh, encounter when you got to the States? Well, the first thing I was with Harris County Medical System. It's a, basically your free medical care. It was horrible. Like I say, they, they saw that I was going paralyzed, but they did nothing. They said, you're fine. Go away. Because they just didn't want to deal they with you. They just didn't want to deal with it. They don't the want to spend the money. Yeah, the they money. want to spend the money. There is a system. There's an algorithm as to who gets, and it's really bad with the, the uh, veterans. There's an algorithm as to who gets fixed and who doesn't. And I'm over 50. And I'm a little broken, so I'm at the end of the list. And the only reason they fixed me is because I came up against this last surgeon, and if he didn't do it, I'd have had such a horribly good case of malpractice against him. It's the only reason he did it. And he knew that, so he felt that he, so he, he, had to do he didn't it. want to get sued. Mm -hmm. That's why he helped mm -hmm. you. And if he didn't feel that that was going to happen, I would not be fixed yet. Wow. See, for two years, I haven't had a television since 2008. And my two years up there, before and after work, I dug for documents and I explored this stuff. What's going on in that country? And it is the root of all evil of the world. Hmm. I mean, what they do to the veterans is horrible. Like I say, there is an IBM algorithm that spits out, okay, he gets something, he gets nothing. And it's the same with with civilians. So you find yourself feeling more comfortable in, in countries like Mexico, Nicaragua, where we are today? And yeah, and now I don't even feel that comfortable here because I thought, okay, well, number one, Houston, Texas, the air is horrible. You know, the chemtrails are just horrible. So I came here, and the first morning I thought, oh, I'm going to look up, smell fresh air, and what do I see? chemtrails started a year and a half ago here so there's no running there's no hiding it's um don't bother coming to the gas chamber we'll bring the gas chamber to you this time and i mean i i have no hope for this this world anymore none at all 
Hmm. It's horrible. It's horrible the way the, the humans are being treated. So do you think you're going to move on somewhere else? Like, is that in you? Or are you just going to hang out Right here? now I have no plans because I just, I don't know. You know, it's it's only been two months since I've kind of slowed down and settled down. And and like I said, where are you going to run? Where are you going to hide? Mm. It, it's everywhere. There's nowhere to run anymore. Mm. So I, what the future holds, I don't know. I was... I'd like to go back to Mexico, but part of my deal was when I traded, you know, I did a prisoner transfer because I had a 10-year sentence. So let's let's start right there. So you went to prison in Mexico. Went to prison in Mexico. This is this is because you got popped a second time for smuggling. For smuggling weed, 2009, and I. And wait, how'd you get caught? I at a checkpoint. You had just marijuana in just your car. Just had, had it in a in a van. Okay. And. Uh, a place where there's never a checkpoint. It was a toll booth is what it was. And then here today they are, lucky me. So they nailed me with a 10-year sentence. <clears throat> You're going to prison in Mexico for 10 years. 10 years. So I get to my cell. It's 10 by 12 feet. Part of that's a little toilet and a little shower stall, and there's 20 of us in there. And we are locked down 24 hours a day. We get out two hours on Tuesday for the yard, two hours on Friday for the yard. The rest of the time you're locked in there with 20 people, elbow to elbow. People shooting heroin, begging, screaming, yelling. Just a, a, an absolute, it's a manicomio is, what's the English word? Hell. Nut house. Nut house. It's a nut house. I mean, it's just crazy. So when you walked in as a gringo, how'd they treat you? Well, I was living there, so and I spoke Spanish, so I said, first thing I said was, look, you know, this is my country too, I ain't no fucking tourist, and I ain't got a bag full of money with me, so fuck all of you. And that's how I went in. And then it turns out, I start talking to this one guy, and I knew his dad. I almost rented a house from him on the beach. So as far as that went, I didn't have any problems like that at all. What was your daily routine like? Shit, there was... I mean, when I first got there, I rented a half a bunk. There's six bunks, three on this side of the wall, three on that side of the wall, and there's two people in each bunk, head to toe. So you're sleeping with this guy's feet in your face. <coughs> and then I got sentenced. It took a year to get sentenced, so then I moved to another building. And the only spot on that... In that cell, was there's a little shelf about so high, and underneath there was the only space. So I spent eight months underneath that shelf. You spent eight months under a shelf in a cell? Eight months under a shelf, reading. You know, they'd pass books through, so... In Spanish or English? Both. Both. So, yeah, I was crouched under that shelf for eight months. Man, and what's the food like? Didn't see one piece of fruit or vegetable for two years. Rice, beans, eggs, potatoes, and tortillas. Three meals a day? Well, in the morning, 5.30, you got a bolillo, a piece of bread, and something to drink, and that was it until 1 o'clock when lunch came. So, you know, I lost about 30 pounds. And you just would read all day for two years? That's it. That's all there was to do. Did you feel like you were going crazy? At the end of the two years, I'd fucking lay down at night, and I'd 
I go, fuck, I'm just going to close my eyes and think about something, and I could not put a thought together. It was like two radios on different stations playing in my head, and I'd have to open my eyes to, to clear the mayhem out of my brain. That's how bad it was. So you felt like you were starting to go crazy? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I what? mean, ten years, you, would, you wouldn't... Two years, you're not the same after that. So you feel like that had a permanent effect oh, on your yeah. brain? Yeah, that's absolutely. In ten years, I can't even imagine what that would do to you. What kind of effects do you feel like it's had on you? Paranoia? Not paranoia. God, I don't know what you would call it. Just uh, almost like a separation again from the human race a little bit, you know? Kind of like when I was died and, and you know, I'm still kind of not connected there. It's kind of almost the same thing. It's like... Like I'm not one of you, mm -hmm. not a part of this uh, species? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so many things have been so freakishly different in my life. You know, seeing that they... Like when I transferred to... From Mexico to the uh, prison in El Paso, Texas, FCI Latuna. I look over, and my bunkmate is George Jung from Blow. So no I, way. Yeah, so I became friends with him. He was my bunkmate. And he's the one who spurred me on to write the book. He says, first he said, how many kids really know their parents? I mean, know them really, everything. And I said, I bet nobody. And he said, that's the best reason to write the book. And he says, do you realize how small a percentage of the human population have seen what we've seen? He says, it's, it's not even a number. That's true. Did you guys share a lot of stories? Yeah, you know, we started talking, and uh, the way we became friends is we started talking about Mexico, and we had, you know, traversed some of the same paths and areas you know him before smuggling, me doing the same smuggling doing the trail same thing yeah interesting so it's almost like a natural smuggling path that people just find. yeah 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 exactly exactly he was down in port of iron punta de mita where i used to play too so yeah what was his uh outlook on life he was pretty pissed you know it was 25 years he'd been in for 25 years he, uh, you know, the whole movie deal, and then at the end, you know, he got busted and got the 60 years. Well, he didn't get the 60 years. He went ahead and narked on, on Carlos later to get his time chopped. So he only did two years. But then he got out, and he started playing again, and he got caught with 1,500 pounds of weed. And then that was career criminal, so he got the 25. So he just got out two years ago. Do you keep in touch with him still? Through he's still on probation, so we're not supposed to talk exactly. But I through uh, T. Rafael Simenio is one of the uh, he's right wrote a book with him. He's one of the old writers from Miami Vice. So I communicate through him and another friend of his. So when first when I got there, he goes, yeah, he goes here, call this guy, and he'll put money on your books. So I had money on my books the whole time, which I didn't have anything, you know, when I was in Mexico, because they don't give you anything. Clothes, nothing. Pillow, blanket, nothing. You walk in there with the clothes on your back, and 
start begging, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so you did you did two years in Max, and then you got transferred back to the states. And then we did a, a transfer, yeah. And that was a deal you made, or is it just like it's a, a prisoner swap? We have a you know the U.S. has a, a treaty with like 137 countries that you can do a prisoner swap. So they had a bus full of Mexicans waiting on the tarmac, and we pulled up and got out, and they got in the plane and went back to Mexico, and we were in America. To serve the rest of your sentence, or? Well, no. The reason I went was because I knew that they would cut the, the sentence was shorter there. So I spent five months there waiting for the paperwork to come back from Washington, and then I was released with two years probation. That's the only reason I went back. I didn't want to go back. Of course not. But eight years is a long time, you know, and 50 years old. Mm-hmm. So, but um, in the end, you only did about two and a half, three years total, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, how did that affect your family and, and, and you being away from them? And Well, you know, they were already all grown and gone and on their own. You know, we had uh, Noah was living with me in Mexico, but he had recently gone back to the States. And, and, and actually, when I got pissed, he was here actually in 2009 so they were grown and on their own my daughter was in England so it wasn't like you know dad's not coming home tonight were they concerned for you did they come yeah but you know they also know who I am and and like my daughter said she said uh, I know you'd be safe wherever you are so it's just kind of like you're going away for a while they'd see you when you got out yeah exactly I mean they they know who I am and 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 my survival, my ability to survive in shitty situations. So it, I don't think it was. I'm sure. Yeah, they were concerned, but it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, they're gonna hang them at sunrise or anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So. So so who are you then? I mean, how do you think people perceive you, or how do you Boy, perceive yourself? Shit, I don't know. You know what? I think that's probably the most confusing thing after all of this. Because what's been taken away from me with this pain, you know, I I don't even know who I am sometimes. Because I'm not me. I'm not, you know, anybody that's met me after that accident hasn't met me. Hmm. So who were you before then? I was, after, before that accident, I was, you know, like the life at a party. I was, I was outgoing and it's like somebody flipped a switch and then I was introverted. I mean, there were days at the beginning when I'd want to take the trash out and I'd see my neighbors out who I love to death and I'd go, fuck, I can't even deal with that. And, I'd, and that happens to this day. Hmm. So that's, I hate that part because you, I liked myself before that, you know. I liked the happy, jovial person I was and that person went away. So... You know, maybe that kind of all falls into the, what's my purpose with this second life? And it falls into, you know, who the hell am I? Who the hell am I in this second life, you know? Because I'm, I, I'm not as happy with this person as I was with the first one. Mm-hmm. And you feel the pain has really kind of affected that oh, overall yeah. being. Oh, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, it just... Uh, It'll take your personality away. It really will. 
and it's you know it's been proven that it just uh, it morphs your DNA it changes it and it changes you so that part I hate and I think I think I have more anger with that than I uh, than I sometimes admit or realize maybe I admit it I don't think I realize it all the time but I think it does piss me off yeah but they're not the damn thing I can do about it you know I try and laugh and smile but it's it's painted on mm-hmm. to a degree mm-hmm. it really is and the pain is located in your neck you know what people always say that my neck never hurts but every other centimeter in my body does I'll get shooting pains in my legs in my arms <clears throat> it's just you know the nerves just send out whatever they send out wherever they want to send it out at the time but it can be just I mean just debilitating to where I just don't even want to get out of bed you know mm-hmm. so Brian what's now what's you're, you're in Nicaragua. I'm You've in had Nicaragua. the last 12 years of pain. You just got your life more or less saved again. So you're not paralyzed. You're back here re- recuperating, rehabilitating yourself. And how are you going to continue on from this point? That's a big question. Um, like I say, I'm going to try and uh, start repairing surfboards again. I'm getting to the point where I'm, I feel like I'm healing the more I heal and the little bit better I get, the more bored I get. So that's, in itself, that's a good sign because that does mean I am healing. So I'm just going to, you know, I've had probably eight people ask me if I'm going to start repairing surfboards again since I've been back. So I'm going to give it a shot and see what happens and uh, take it from there. Other than that, plans, I don't know. I haven't had real good luck with plans, so I think I'm going to stay present. <laughs> I'm going to stay present and just let the plans make themselves and see how that works this time. Because honestly, I really don't uh, I don't really have an answer right now. I really don't. I mean, the last 2 years were just such hell and such such a mind fuck that it's going to take more than 2 months to unravel all that, mm-hmm. you know. If it is unravel, if it is able to unravel, I don't know. So, what the future is, I I just don't know. Do you have um, any savings or anything like that you'll be able to fall back on at some point, or it's like you're really just starting from square one? I'm, I'm pretty much closed on my back right now. You know, I paid a couple months rent ahead here, but that's it. Come May first, hmm. or is it May? It's May, June. Come June first, May thirteenth. Gotta do something. So I don't know. We'll Circumstance see. of life. You forget what day it is. Uh-huh. It's a good life though. When when I think you forget what day it is. I've lost a day every week since I've been here. So <laughs> so that's good. Yeah. Well, man, this has been a pleasure speaking to you and hearing your story. Likewise. And I think uh, there's a lot of uh, seeds of. I think really helpful sort of information that people could I hope benefit so. from, you know? I hope so, because, uh, yeah, I don't want it to go to waste. We're uh, all looking forward to hearing that book. Me too. You don't have a website or anything, do you? No. Okay, no. well, we'll have to make you one. Okay. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate your time. 
My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.